we are thrilled to have Josh Patterson with us today. Thanks so much for being here, Josh. You and I are just meeting for the first time, but I hear great things about the work you're doing and am really looking forward to learning more. Josh, I want to get started just by you giving us a little bit of background of the work you do with United Way, where your focus is, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Thank you so much for having me here today, Stacey. I appreciate the opportunity. So I love being here and I love talking about some of these topics because I think they're so relevant to our work. And I sometimes say, oh yeah, I, I, I may be employed today by United Way, but my real job is with the community. I just happen to have an office at United Way right now. And I, I love um, working with the community in so many different aspects. So currently I am employed by United Way Worldwide. I'm the director of the 211 program which means we have a team of uh, some amazing people across our network that we support with the 211 services of the 211 helpline. Each 211 in our country is independently operated. There's about 240 contact centers. All of those 211s respond collectively to about 20 million calls annually. We maintain databases of resources and information and connect people looking for help to those appropriate services. And there's probably about 900,000 services and programs in our databases. So we're kind of that intersection of knowing what's out in the community and hearing what the needs are and making that, that bridge or that connection in between. So we get to support that work. I've been involved with 211 almost since its inception back in 1999 and uh, have worked with United Way or 211 in various capacities for my entire career. Wow, two one one. Let's talk a little bit more about that because what a great service and what a great channel for people who may not know what it is. Right. It's sometimes it's known as the best kept secret, um, which is not really a good thing. We uh, have uh, been around since 1997. The first two one one was launched in Atlanta, Georgia, and then it was statewide in Connecticut, 1999. The FCC designated the number for health and human service information and referral, or that that connection to community resources in the year 2000. And from there, we have grown across the country. Um, like I said, there's about 240 contact centers. We're 96 percent of the the nation right now and responding to that, those 20 million phone calls. During COVID, 32 governors activated the 211 service in their state. They said, don't call 911 for symptoms or testing or whatever, call 211. And so our call volume went off the charts. We saw 150%, 200%, 300% increase in some communities where people called and asked questions about symptoms. And then they started to ask questions about testing. And then of course the economic problems from there, 211 was poised to answer those questions as well. And then with the vaccine rollout and access to services and rent programs and those kind of services, 211 really played, uh, they were in the spotlight probably for the first time in its history with COVID. So we've always been there. We've played a role in disasters, whether it be a hurricane or a wildfire or a tornado. Um, and then of course, everybody's, if they're in a personal crisis or a personal disaster, 211 has been there, but it's definitely much more well-known today than it ever has been. Our primary caller is probably somebody who's never asked for help before or doesn't know where to turn for help. So they have 
maybe encountered a crisis for the first time like COVID, or maybe they lost their job or they're looking for services for the first time and they don't know where to turn. So that's our primary caller and they'll pick up the phone. 211 is a free phone number. We're available 24 seven across the country. And we answer with a live professional trained specialist will help a person kind of navigate, ask some additional questions, learn about what they're looking for, and then make a connection to the appropriate service. We typically don't provide a direct service on the phone line. We do in a couple cases, but for the most part, we help them get connected or navigate or find the appropriate program that that they're seeking. Um, So it may be an individual or family. They're all welcome to call us um, regardless of their, um, their economic status, regardless of their Um, language barrier or access, please, we invite them to call us and we will help them get connected. Give me some idea of what kind of services you're connecting them to. So last year, the number one call is probably housing, housing and healthcare. Last year, COVID, of course, topped all of our numbers, but housing, healthcare, um, food are some of our very basic calls. So person will call up, they may have recently lost their job, they maybe have a high medical bill, or things are just tight that month. And so they are struggling to pay their rent, they may have an eviction notice. And so they're going to call and ask, hey, where can I get help with rent? I have a couple kids. And what we'll do is maybe ask a couple questions to get to the root of the problem. We call it asking the second question. And so, you know, do you have an eviction notice? Are there kids in the home? Do you have income? Do you need food immediately? You know, you can maybe sign up for food stamps, but if you need food in the house immediately, let's get you to a food bank. Um, It sounds like you need help with rent. Is it mortgage assistance or is it actually rent assistance? Do you have an eviction notice? If there's children in the home, that may qualify them for something different. We'll ask them about what resources maybe they've tapped into already. If they've talked to somebody in the faith community or if they've already applied at the government programs or another charitable organization um, to find out if they've received or encountered any barriers and then try to remove any of those barriers that they might have to access in those programs. So housing is a big one. Food, of course, is a big one where people will need immediate help with groceries. They know if they can get help with groceries, it may free up some income or their money to to pay for other bills that they might not be able to get support for. And then things like healthcare, COVID, of course, was a big deal. Where can I get a a vaccine? Where can I get a, a COVID test, or I don't have health insurance. Can I get somebody to help pay my prescriptions? I just got back from the clinic and I can't fill my prescription. Can somebody help me? Josh, what kind of impact are you seeing from 211? I think for me, and I remember when I would answer calls, now I work in more of an office setting across supporting our network, but impact has probably come in a couple different ways. For me, it was very taxing to hear people ask us for help all day long. And I would pick up the phone and, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 calls a day. People are saying, hey, I've got a problem. I've got a problem. That could be really hard. And to be able to say, you know what, you know, I think I've got an answer for you. I've got a solution. There is a a degree of impact where we've talked to a person, they felt heard, understood, someone listened to them. We help them get back on track where they might've been in a crisis and didn't know how to answer or or get to the right program or service. And they didn't know what questions or what they really needed or what was the right thing to ask for when they asked for government assistance. Was it WIC or SNAP or HEAT or LAHEAP or WIC or whatever program it was. 
we helped them. And that conversation was kind of that first level of impact. We helped them feel better and confident and empower them so they could go out and get connected. Or we advocated on their behalf and maybe did a, a warm transfer call and helped them. That first level of impact, that's probably some of the coolest things because I'm like, oh my gosh, this person was coming home from the hospital today and we made sure that their the air conditioning and their electricity was turned back on and that there was food in the home when they got home from the hospital because it had, you know, it, it, they had struggled so long um, to get to that place of healing. So I, I love that, that level of impact. The second level is if we can give information early on, we can prevent the perpetuation of a problem. If we can get somebody to a healthcare screening, we can prevent an illness from getting worse. If we can get somebody their prescription, we can prevent somebody getting in a crisis where they are endangering their own health. If we can help somebody with food, we can maybe help them pay some of their other bills ahead of time. So that information early on can prevent the perpetuation of a problem or curtail the crisis that they may be in. I, I look at that as that next level of impact. Information is very empowering and we have that and that can be very transformative. I love it because this is so amazing because honestly, Josh, this is really what we're all about. I mean, we when, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a minute is we're really all about people like you and services like 211 and what's going on on the ground in this, com- in this country because- Defining us, the tagline is America's classroom for the heart and mind. And that, you know, education is a revolution of the heart and a revolution of the mind, because once you're educated, you actually have information that you can deploy through channels for good. We use the power of media communication, the promise of education to try to create those channels for good. And what I love about your story and I love about this program is we believe, and I think you will agree, that there are so many people out there that are on the front lines of support in this country. We focus a lot in education on traditional schools, teachers, administrators, and what they are doing on the front lines in social justice work every single day. And you guys have an army of people out there helping others every single day that really do have the real story about what's going on in this country and their voices are not heard. They're faceless for us. So, you know, enlighten us. Talk to me a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of the personal impact of what we're seeing with the political divide in the country right now? There's a couple of things that stand out. And it, it is pretty amazing that our 211 specialists, and they're, they, they're trained, they go through a certification process before they, they get on the phones. And they do an amazing job because they hear these stories every single day, talking to 20 million people last year, which is about 50,000 people a day. And you compare that to like Nielsen ratings surveys, 40,000 households a year. And we're like, we're talking to 50,000 people a day. We kind of know what's going on on the, on the streets in our community. And, and granted we're, we're talking to a population that is already somewhat disconnected. So it's not a, a, such a general survey, but it is a population that feels a little bit disconnected. 
And there's a couple things that come out that we're hearing. One is that we have a very complicated service delivery system. There's more resources today because you know we've been able to address um, through legislation, bring more resources to states and counties to address things like rent assistance and the eviction moratorium and the child tax credit. Amazing, amazing resources are bringing new programs and, and services to the community. The challenge is we have a complicated service delivery system and people that need that help sometimes struggle to find the best door in, um, whether it be a language barrier or they just barely don't meet a qualification because maybe they don't have children in their home anymore, or maybe they are a single LGBTQ individual and they're, they just don't qualify for the general family assistance or the child tax credit. So that complicated service delivery system is hard to navigate. And 211 is there. We want to help people navigate and say, this is what you got to ask for. This is the acronym or this is the program. Make sure you bring your ID, tell them this situation about your home. But it is still very hard. And if you want immediate help with food, food stamps are not going to give you immediate help. That takes some time. And food stamps don't cover hygiene products. And food stamps are great to access some food. But if you are not near a grocery store, your food stamps are going to be exhausted really fast buying that overpriced box of Cheerios at, at the local corner market versus in the suburbs. Josh, how important is it to put a personal face on this for the public. How important is it for Americans to understand the details, the particulars, if you will, of what's going on in this country and the work that needs to be done and that you guys are doing? The people who call us, there's a, a degree of anonymity that they want to hang on to and a degree of dignity that they want to hang on to. And so I'm always very reluctant to say, oh, let me showcase everybody's problems, because that's one uh, rapport piece of trust that we have with our callers, is it is an anonymous call or a confidential call in that sense. But it is very important for our elected officials, for our school boards, for our community leaders and our philanthropic leaders to know that these are our neighbors that are asking for help. These are the people who cut your hair, wait on you at the restaurant, sack your groceries at the grocery store, put your groceries in a bag. These are your, your neighbors and they're the ones that are struggling. But that is the complexity of the issues that our neighbors are facing. We may not see it up front. We may just see, oh, it's their car broke down. They got to, you know, they got to work harder, get a better job. But there could be layers and layers of that issue behind that. And we're hearing about that on the phone and we see that and we know that, hey, these problems take a lot to address and uh, bringing those things to bear is really important. So yes, we need to highlight and showcase the complexity of the problems, knowing that we also want to respect the dignity and the privacy of individuals seeking help. This is something I think about a lot, Stacy, because I grew up in a very faith-based community and a faith-based culture. And there is a degree of, well, yeah, we got to help those that are that are on the fringe, but we also got to work and you got to be resilient on your own. And that is this unique place. And poverty is a combination of both circumstance and behavior. And when it's circumstance where there's a natural disaster and the house is wiped out, we love to race in and help out. Like it's, it's beyond their control. It's a circumstance. Let's go help them. 
and we step up and usually those problems are a little bit easier to solve and we're very willing to do it. But when poverty or a person's need is based in behavior, we're like, oh, that's too complicated. It's their own fault. They need to do their part first before I step in and do something. And yet so many of our issues are a, a hybrid combination of that circumstance and behavior. And we cannot under any circumstances cross or pass judgment and withhold our support because we feel like it's their own fault. And I, I learned that from a passage of, of scripture growing up that it is a sin if we withhold our food or withhold our resources because we feel like it's their own fault. That is not for us to make that call, but we make that call all the time. When we have limited resources, we're like, oh, let's have them fill an application to see if they're eligible for our help. Well, it's interesting because that's really goes back to meritocracy, right? And, and we see that sort of meritocracy value in our country. And it's not that that's not a good value. I mean, we want everybody to do the best that they can. We want everybody to try hard, but we have large pockets of populations across the board, not just with food insecurity or with poverty, but the, the assumption is if you just worked a little harder, right? If you just pulled yourself up, if you just decided you weren't gay, if you just did it like we want you to do it, then everything would be better. And so it gives me sort of permission to withhold if that's my mindset. You know, changing that belief system is a difficult thing to do. And how do you see that play out in the communities you're serving? It's no longer us and them. It's, it's one person or one partnership to make that situation better. All giving is good. No matter where you're at, all giving is good. We should never feel bad about any type of that giving. But imagine when we come together in that partnership where we, we it's not a handout, it's not even a hand up because a hand up is puts us in a higher position than somebody else. It's an equal hand with that person to make that, that situation better. And I love that. And I, I wish we could do that. I wish I played that role more often in that equal partnership. But that's the type of giving that, that I think we try to employ at United Way or we want to employ at United Way. That's the type of giving I personally want to employ. And I, I, it goes back to you know, marrying faith and, and making a change from, oh, it's you know, pulling up your bootstraps to, no, this is, we're all in this together. What we're seeing is this us versus them mentality that sort of undergirds so much of our history in this country, so much of how we have evolved in this country, and so much of our thinking in terms of how you improve your life and our ability to have control over our circumstances, right? And our ability as Americans to have the freedom to change our circumstances, to be able to not repeat cycles. That's served us really well in this country. And it's a beautiful thing about this country. We are now in our country really looking at what does that all really mean and what impact has it had and how do we get better? How do we keep the old and honor what has been beneficial for us and honor the values that America has been built on, but also start to really challenge 
the problems of who's special and who's not, us versus them, this idea of meritocracy, this idea of just by your own sheer free will, you're able to break a cycle of poverty. What have you seen change? Because you've been at this for a long time. So not only are you seeing the actual personal stories of people on the ground, but you've seen shifts in the, in the, in the cycles, I would imagine, and how people are moving through giving and supporting and honoring people that are not like them. What have you seen shift over the last several decades? There's probably one or two shifts that I've seen really play out. The first is a shift to, and this is where I'm going to blame some of the social service delivery system that I'm a part of, that we want to see long-term impact and outcomes. And I love long-term impact and outcomes. And I will give you a great workshop on outcomes and intermediate and short-term and the versus, you know, what's an output versus an outcome. Like I can give you a really good workshop on that sometime. But in that shift to creating outcomes and impact and getting to the root cause of a situation, sometimes we forget to take care of the immediate need. And I am all about prevention, but I'm also about, okay, we're in a crisis. We need to, you know, just because, you know, we're preventing and telling people to wear a seatbelt does not mean we close our emergency room in case there's a car accident. We need to do both. And I've seen such a shift to those outcomes and impact that we sometimes forget that it's okay to still have an emergency room and help people. And it slows that. down the process, does it not? I mean, you right. just said food stamps don't come in right away. It's not like right. it solves your hunger problem today. Right, exactly. Right. And, and you really need to employ both. It's not a binary thing. And that has probably been the negative shift that I've seen. I think outcomes are great and that's a, been a great shift, but this binary thinking that, oh, it's got to be one or the other. I need a bottom line answer. I need to know right away, we got to do something new. Let's not reinvent the wheel, but let's do something new over here and it becomes binary. And that is a shift that I think you fail to honor what's done in the past and you fail to recognize that there's a lot of tools you need to employ to address a problem. We really need everybody coming together. And this, this one-stop mentality or one central location or one centralized application to get help. I love the efficiency of it. There, that's cool. I love the whole one-stop shop feature, but it, that's not how we can solve problems. United Way was built when a and this is kind of a funny story, but 135 years ago, a priest, a rabbi, a, a woman business owner, um, and a Protestant minister all sat down in Colorado and said, hey, we got to work together and, and figure out a way to do this together. And United Way is not about one philanthropist or one donor saying, well, here, here's, here's all the money, go solve all the problems. It's everybody giving just a little bit. And that's very empowering because that gives everybody a voice. It gives everybody a vote to how problems are solved. And that one-stop shop doesn't work for solving community issues. We need everybody's voice. We need everybody to come to the table, even if it's not a voice that we traditionally hear or a non-traditional voice, that's who we also need to hear from. I love going to the movies. It's the Avengers scene where you've got all the different superheroes coming together to solve the problem. It's not just one superhero. It's everybody pulling a little bit different nuanced resource together. Mr. Holland's Opus is another one of those movies. Great where, movie. Awesome right? movie. Oh, and yeah. 
And at the end, they're playing the, the orchestra is all there and they've got seasoned violinists and brand new violinists and they've got an electric guitar player in the orchestra. And you're like, who are all these people? Why are they, <laughs> the young students playing with the, the seasoned students and the experts? But it's really all of us together that make that beautiful music together. We all need those different voices. And in our one-stop mentality and one, oh, we got to be efficient with nonprofits. We've got to be efficient with government. Let's have one, one central location. That shift has, we've lost the voices of, of everybody in that solution. It, it's a bit of a symphony of service. Yes. Josh. It, I mean, and in individual communities. And I think if we can help the audience understand the value of the small acts, of service in your local community. You know, I have a neighbor who does so many small acts every day. She pays attention, right? She pays attention to the person bagging the groceries. She pays attention to somebody who has a need. She pays attention to the elderly person who needs a ride somewhere. And those are important things. And I think with social media and all the chatter and, you know, the big stage that I, I really want to just take a minute to say how important those individual acts are, those quiet acts in a local community. And I'm sure I, you see that. Absolutely. And I applaud that. And Stacey, that, that's hard to do. It's hard to share your voice. It's hard to get involved in the school board. It's hard to get other people at the table and listen to them. It's hard to bring a symphony together. It's a lot easier to just have one instrument, learn the music and play it and move on. It's hard to have and engage and do those simple acts routinely, regularly, and remember the person at the grocery store. But that is so important. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us cool. That's what makes us the Avengers. That's what's going to solve our problems at the end of the day is when everybody comes together, just that little bit makes that extra effort. That's how we can solve the problems. And I, I really believe that. I, I don't think it's one silver bullet answer over here or one nonprofit or one government. It really does take all those simple acts, the hard stuff to come together and treat a whole situation. You know, you have lived and are living a very purpose-filled life. And tell me how you got into the work and why. What's evolved for you? So I probably give a lot of credit to my parents because I had a wonderful childhood and they supported me in, in so many things. I've always loved people. I love caring for people and I love helping and doing what I can to make my community a better place. So growing up, I always engaged in service. I was very involved in in my high school, I was the religious leader in our Mormon faith. We were, it was called seminary and there were about 1200 students. So I was very involved and active in, in faith-based service projects and go down and serve the homeless and take a date down to serve the homeless and say, Hey, let's go, let's go do this fun service project together. And so that, that was just always part of my upbringing. I served a mission for our church and spent two years in Santiago, Chile as a proselytizing missionary for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. And uh, that was very eye-opening. Before we jumped into the interview on the podcast, we were talking a little bit about just each other and getting to know each other. And you said that you really love to talk about hope and that you have a lot to say about hope. And I would assume that is due to what you're seeing 
with humanity. And I think this is a time that we, we very much need hope in this country. And so what are you seeing and what are your thoughts about hope moving forward? I have on my iPod or my playlist on my phone, MLK's Martin Luther King Jr. speech, um, that his famous, I have a dream speech. And before he talks about all of his dreams, he says one sentence and it's not quoted. It's, you know, he, they quote the dream part, but they don't remember this one sentence. And the one sentence he says, says, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy was, he was a realistic optimist. He had this, this hope and this belief, even though he saw that it was going to be hard today and tomorrow, it's going to be hard. And I see that too. It's very taxing to hear about the problems. And I know that I'm not going to solve all the problems of hunger or healthcare or COVID or the inequities or issues of justice or mistreatment of just how we treat our our neighbors today or tomorrow. But I still have those dreams. I can still believe because I've seen bits and pieces of that. I've seen bits and pieces in our society where people care for each other and they step up and things change and things do get better. I'm like, oh my gosh, we have it within us to do that. We just need to keep at it and we can't give up. We need to be relentless with it. The other thing that kind of keeps me going in that hope is, again, movie, clip, book. Um, <laughs> so in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Roa Dahl's book, um, you know, Charlie, this poor little kid from London wants to win a ticket into the, into the chocolate factory and a lifetime supply of chocolate. But Charlie's so poor, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have that opportunity to win a golden ticket. And on his birthday, he gets his one chocolate bar and he gathers his mom and dad and his grandpa Joe and his grandma Josephine and his grandpa George and his grandma Georgina around and they gather around this chocolate bar and there's this sense of hope in the room. And the book reads, Rod Dahl says, they all know it was ridiculous to expect this one little chocolate bar to have a magic ticket inside. But they also believed that even though it was ridiculous, they had that belief that, you know what? We have just as much chance of any other of succeeding. And sometimes it is ridiculous for me to think, oh my gosh, we've got a complicated service delivery system. How can we possibly fix food and get food to people. We've got a a ridiculous justice system and we're not helping serve the people who need it most. But the chance is there and the chance is there because people step up, people volunteer and people are like, I can do this. I, you know, I've got it in me to do a little bit more. I can exert that energy and that strength. I'm going to be a volunteer. I'm going to be one of the voices in the crowd, but that crowd can get louder and louder. And that's, that's the hope that I have. Like I, I see the challenges, but I have a strong belief that we can still fix these problems. What's interesting, Josh, is that I know a little bit about your own personal story. And so I want to get into that for a minute because this great hope that you have and what I'm hearing from you is this great faith in humanity and that's driven a lot by religious faith. So you have this great faith in humanity and this great faith in hope and individuals and what they're capable of, but yet you've lived your own paradox with your own faith. And so you are a person who is very familiar with paradox, not only in the political, which is always personal, but not only in the broad perspective of what's going on in this country, but individually as well. And I wonder if you can share a little bit of that with us and what that paradox has taught you. 
That's a big question, Stacey. There's a lot and many layers to that. It has been a challenge growing up with such a strong faith and dedication to a belief and also identifying as LGBTQ. I'm gay. And that's been a challenge in the Mormon faith because it theologically, it's not discussed. It hasn't been welcomed in the past. So theologically, it's not there. That has trickled into culture. So culturally, it's not well received. And here I am giving my whole heart and soul and so much belief, like, oh my gosh, this is who I am. And this is, this is my native language, this faith. And yet I wasn't welcome to speak it. I wasn't welcome to be myself as a, a, as a gay Mormon. They're just, it was a paradox. It just didn't make sense. And so obviously stayed in the closet most of my life, came out much, much, much later in life and been trying to reconcile that. And there's been some great moves by the the Mormon faith to say, oh, we want to be more accepting. We just don't understand it. It's not completely accepted, you know, in the hierarchy and the structure and the theology, it's definitely not, there's not been any changes in the theology side of things. The only change has been, okay, I think we, we want to be more open and more welcoming. So uh, that gives me a little bit of hope, but there's not a lot of structural changes happening. So that's definitely been a challenge personally and not give up everything good that it taught me and toss it out because, oh, they're not as accepting of who I am today. But I, I go back and I, I think, okay, it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have, I don't have to toss out everything to be who I am today. I can still, that's a part of who I am. So how can I reconcile it? That's, that's really hard work to do. Um, but if you can say it doesn't have to be binary, you can, you can be open and inclusive. That's a big step. The other thing that I'm reminded of is even if theologically and institutionally things are not perfect, there's a lot of good people out there. There's a lot of not very friendly people out there, but we mm -hmm. can make those changes and build those relationships. And I, I look at America as a, as a similar way. We don't agree with all the laws here. But there's enough good that we kind of hang on to it and like, okay, let's keep working at it. And that's sometimes where I land with my faith as well. It's like, okay, I don't agree with a lot of, of the theological side of it, but I'm going to hang on to enough here. And I have three children. They're all very active in the religion. My, my son served a Mormon mission in Guatemala. My daughter just got married inside of a Mormon temple. I wasn't allowed to go in because of I'm on the outside of the faith where she's much more inside of the faith. So I'm not attending that, that ceremony but I can still have a great relationship with my daughter and I can still have a great relationship with them and is embedded as they are in the faith that again, it takes work to get along with people that you may not connect with a hundred percent, but that's what, that's the laboratory of life that, that brings so much energy to us. I love that. Cause I think it's a model for the country and I think it's a model for all of us personally, because individual relationship changes everything. I go back to my friend who, who just have, just knows the folks at the grocery store, right? Just sees them and honors them and gives them a face and doesn't need to make an assumption or an accusation, just wants to get to know them. Right. Right. And that, that shifts so much. I mean, we, um, the beauty of America is the tension of opposites. The beauty of America is that you can have an opinion. <laughs> the beauty of America is that everybody can move to sort of the dance of their beliefs. And it hasn't made you cynical. 
And so, you know, how, how's that work? If you had some, you know, thoughts for our audience, I'd love for you to share how you've maintained this kind of hope and excitement in this, this laboratory of life. My sister told me a long time ago when I was serving my Mormon mission in Chile, seeing so many issues. And I, I felt like I had a bottle of Tylenol trying to address cancer in so many systemic issues. And she says, don't get cynical because that's one of the hardest things to ever overcome. And I'm like, don't get cynical. But that is, it's really hard not to feel jaded and cynical. And when you're, you're beat up or mistreated, yeah, it can be very hard to forgive and let go of some of those things. And some things I have to acknowledge, like Martin Luther King acknowledge it is difficult today and it's going to be difficult tomorrow too. But it doesn't mean I can't think about and dream and like, okay, what can be better about this? And I agree a thousand percent that it begins with those personal relationships like your neighbor and building that community of, of respect and rapport with people around you. We can't disregard the systemic side of it and we have to dismantle the systemic inequities and the systemic injustices out there as well. We have to treat the people that maybe weighed on us really well, but we also have to fight that there is a living wage that they get and we have to treat um, people that are different from us with respect, but we also have to fight that there's policies and legislation that protects everybody. So it's not a one or the other, but it begins with that treating people better and the idea that I need to go and fix some systemic things behind this as well. So a couple of things that keep me doing that is one, I there's a part of me that's optimistic. I'm like, okay, it's my optimism that's keeping me going. But hope is not just about optimism or this boundless understanding like, oh, it's going to be better or a, a misbelief because hope is also embedded in our capacity inside of us. And I believe and I've seen that play out that everybody has something to offer. It's that the Rambam's ladder, we're in this as an equal partnership. People have good in them. We have to uncover it sometimes. But once we uncover it and recognize it and unleash it, that to me is what fuels the hope. It's not so much the belief, it's that there is a capability embedded in our human DNA that says, yeah, we have the capability to be better. It's hard though. It is really hard to let go and be nice and not hold a grudge. It's not easy to do that. It's so much easier to react or to, to carry that jaded, cynical mindset. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge the pain. Uh, the pain yep. exists, right? Yep. And pain exists for people that are in marginalized communities. And the pain exists also for people who are struggling with change and who do not have a lot of exposure to people that are different from them. And so that part to me is, again, this interesting piece of the tension for you as a gay man, and particularly for you as a gay man who came out later, because when you understood your own identity, it wasn't as open as it is now, still not completely open, but right. you were living in a very, very different time. What would you say to students now? Because there's a lot going on now where people are really exploring their identities and have permission to explore their identities maybe than there had been before. And to the parents of those folks who are struggling with coming along quite as fast as the kids are. I think it's important because it goes back to this whole thing of, I don't understand. Whenever we're dealing with an us versus them mentality, what we're really dealing with is a lack of understanding. And so I'd like you to just, you know, anything that you want to share 
about your own personal experience with that and then how you would apply that to some of the other issues we've been talking about today? What I would say to students that are maybe trying to figure out their own orientation or identity and what I would say to the parents, I would say, I love you. I care for you. Tell me what you're feeling. And I would stop and I would listen. And I would take a break and acknowledge what they're feeling and what they're experiencing in that moment. And then say, okay, how can I help? What can I do to support you? What do you need? What do you want? How can I help you get there? That would be definitely my message to students, but it would also be my message to the parents. And I think the parents would be like, well, I want my, I want my kid to come home for Christmas. If you want your kid to come home for Christmas, let's talk about your relationship. What, what can you do to make sure they know you love them so they feel welcome in your house? Let's talk about that. Or if you want your kid to, to invite you, invite them to their wedding, and it may not be your traditional wedding inside of a Mormon temple or, or at your church, but what do you want in that relationship? Do you want to be there? Let's talk about that. And acknowledge that, like you said, like it's not easy to figure that out, but as we dig down deep and feel validated and loved, I think we can start to find some of those, those answers. Systemically, we need to do a much better job. We need to be more open and we need to build systems and processes that are inclusive. And, and that's in our school system it has to be built into our, our structure that we have a inclusive and open environment where a student does feel comfortable talking to a teacher or talking to a fellow student about their orientation or identity. And it's and parents need to feel the same comfort going to church. My parents never felt, but it was not a topic ever talked about in our church. So when I came out to my parents, they didn't know how to react. They, they didn't see any models for that. The only models they saw were stereotypes in television and movies that poked fun at, at an LGBTQ person. So that needs to be built in. But I would, I would stop and just say, hey, I love you. I care for you. Tell me, tell me how you feel. What's going on? I can see your emotion in this and how incredibly personal it is for you. And I think it's what, to a large degree, you have to teach us and the broader community has to teach us because it really is at the end of the day on every single thing we're talking about, about relationship. It's about relationship between two human beings. And once we can reach out and have relationship with somebody who is different from us. It teaches us how to, in the broader community, see those relationships completely differently. And so I'm assuming that you apply all this in your, these concepts, these philosophies, these things that we're talking about now really, really apply in your work. And I just want you to bring us full circle. Right. Our work is designed to be inclusive. Our work is designed to be universally accepting 180 languages, 24 seven, Call us if you identify as LGBT or Q and need a resource or call us if you are a family and, and you have never asked for government assistance before, it's okay, you are welcome to call us. So universally, that's how our programs and services are designed. Josh, how do people get in touch? How do people reach out to United Way? To, to I mean, obviously 211 is 211, but give us a little direction for the listening right. audience. The first invitation is you can pick up the phone and dial 211. It's a free call. If you're like, what's going on? I want to search it out first. Go to 211.org. Great way to kind of 
noodle through it and say, oh, this is what it's all about. And then you can search and say, oh, type in my zip code. Here's the local 211 and go to their local website or even get their backdoor 1-800 number or their texting or something like that. So 211 and 211.org are the primary ways. But the second invitation is there's a thousand different United Ways across the country. They're pretty much in every small community. The challenge about United Way is that it's very fragmented. Every, you know, it's not like one standardized thing. But the cool thing about it is it's local to a community. Like every community knows and they participate on a local level. Get involved with United Way. United Way is not about one philanthropist. It's about a whole community in a united fashion coming together to help work through problems. So volunteer um, and you can go to unitedway.org and say, hey, I want to find out where my local United Way is, volunteer and uh, engage in your community that way. It's a great direction. Any other recommendations you have for people that are listening? I care for our community so much and I care for the people who want to do something and even those that, that are struggling like you've got something in you, share it, even though it's hard, even though it may seem ridiculous or we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, we, we still have the power within us to affect change. And I trust that. And I trust that in people and invite people to engage and share what they have with their local community. Thank you so much. It has been such an honor. What a great conversation. And just thank you for the work that you do and really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.